For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Continuing with his ongoing theme, the writer to the Hebrews spends much of chapter 9 explaining how the New Testament, or New Covenant as it's often called, offers in Jesus a permanent fix to man's age-old problem, our sin and our estrangement from God. Let's join Pastor Ross with the message entitled, Problem Solved. Alright, let's go. We're ready to begin. Welcome you back to your seats. Why don't you make your way to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As you take a seat, turn there with me in your Bibles. We have been in the middle of it. We are in a section from chapter 7 to chapter 10, which is really a notoriously a sort of difficult and sometimes confusing section. There's a lot of text and it's a lot of going back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and Judaism, and it can be a little bit confusing. Um, I had the opportunity, while you're turning to Hebrews 9, uh, to uh, go to a coffee shop uh, with Zach and um, our Zach, and we were sitting there, and I noticed on a table a book of uh, commentaries on Matthew, and so I went over and I talked to the guy and I said, so you're preaching on Matthew on Sunday, I take it. And he said, yes, I am. And uh, he said, I'm going to do the uh, Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. And I said, oh, well, I'm in the middle of Hebrews chapter 9. And he goes, oh, he goes, good luck with that. <laughs> I said, they like it. They like it. And, you know, one guy came up to me and said, see, three of them right there. <laughs> uh, somebody came up to me and said, Pastor Ross, you need to award me a degree, a Bible degree, after you get done with the book of Hebrews. And, uh, you know, it is kind of like that, isn't it? It's like a, a seminary course on the Old Testament. And... Uh, uh, such rich truths. You, you got to dig a little bit, but it's worth it. And today is no no exception. Chapter nine's a full chapter, but we get through it, and uh, it, it yields some great, wonderful, helpful insights. And so I'm looking forward to that. We're going to dig in after a word of prayer. Now, Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that sometimes your word has some challenging sides to it, Lord. But your Spirit is so faithful to help us to unlock those truths so that we can be blessed. And we ask the same thing happen for us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. amen. When I was younger, I had the opportunity to visit Washington, uh, D.C., toward all the sites there, of course, the Capitol Building, the Lincoln Memorial, the Washington Monument, but what was the most memorable for me, anyway, was the White House, because, you know, as a child, you understand that the president lives there. Well, what's cool about the White House and the stuff inside the White House is that it's full of meaning. You know, the furnishings tell a story. A table's there not just to be a table, I mean, it has significance and paintings and everything about it 
is telling this uh, fantastic story. Um, for example, well, let's start with the, the treaty room. There's a, there's a room designated. So, so each room kind of has a name, and, you know, it's not just a room. It's the treaty room, and this is uh, a painting that is, of course, speaking on the wall of something historical that happened in that room. And so in that room, uh, the Spanish-American War came to an end, and there was a, a signing on the table. Here's the table. And it's called the treaty table. And, and several treaties of significance have been signed on that table because it's the treaty table, you know? So you're just not going to put some flowers on it, you know? It's got some meaning. And the next picture is the room, the treaty room. And then next slide. I mean, even the rugs have meaning. And, and you have to understand the symbol because that symbol is going to tell you, the rug is telling you, who we are, our intentions, and, and really our worldview. It's all wrapped up in a rug. So it's not just to make your toes all comfy, you know? Uh, it has more value and significance than its practical application there as just a rug to make us comfortable. No, no that we, we do have one more. It's the president's desk, and it tells a story of our relationship with England. When Queen, Queen Victoria sent it as a gift in the 1880s. And it's been used there in the Oval Office ever since. And it's got all kinds of symbols too in there. Everything has a meaning. So it's not just a desk to write on. It's telling the story, you know. Now, I couldn't thank you for that slide. I couldn't help but think about Hebrews chapter 9, studying it because... As you'll recall, the writer, a pastor, no doubt, of this uh, difficult Hebrew Christian, Jewish Christian congregation who's having a tough time and they just want to go backwards to Judaism. And the whole point of Hebrews is to say, you have the greatest of all blessings in a full-blown Messiah who is the Son of God. Where are you going to find the blessings that we have in Jesus anywhere else, especially if you go back to Judaism. And so um, he is going to start, and he has continued this uh, discussion um, by, about considering another house and its furnishings that tell a story. And that would be the house of the Lord called the temple there. And inside that temple, there are tables, and there are, there's candlelight, and there's water basins, but they're more than just the practical uh, use. They are telling the story of the gospel about our problem and how God came to fix it and how he would fix it one day. So every last furnishing. I was reading this morning in my own quiet time before uh, studying for this. I was reading Exodus 25 where the God is telling, uh, telling Moses how to uh, prepare the worship center called the tabernacle. There are four full details down to the clasps and every clasp, how they're made, what they're made of, what direction they're pointing in. Everything is screaming significance to come in Christ. And so it's really important. And he's just gonna use this argument to try to convince the Jews, his Jewish Christian friends to stick with Jesus 
Don't go backwards. That's the whole point. And now he's going to go to the house and start pulling out some of the furnishings and saying, come on, you know what this means. And it's not fulfilled with us. It's fulfilled only in Jesus. Verse 1. 1 through 5. Here we go. Now the first covenant or the first arrangement, the, the first deal, the first testament, they all mean the same thing. The first covenant had regulations for worship, Judaism, and also an earthly sanctuary. So there was a temple, right? The tabernacle was a pre-temple. It was a tent set up. In its first room where the lamps stand, now here come the furnishings, the table, not just any table, the consecrated bread for a purpose. This was called the holy place. Now behind the second curtain, which has huge significance, was a room called the most holy place, or we call it the holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark, the word means chest or box, four by two by two feet foot, contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant, which are the Ten Commandments. Above the ark were the cherubim or angelic creatures of real beauty, of glory. So there were two golden cherubim. We'll show you a picture in a bit. Overshadowing the atonement cover. So the top of the chest was called the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail now. But that doesn't mean I can't. <laughs> and I, I feel the temptation. I know what he's saying. I got a lot to say. I got a lot to say. And yeah, so, so, so let's pause there, okay? And, and, and number one, the first covenant, the first testament, what is it saying? It's saying we have a big problem. We have a big problem. The first covenant really is just pointing out there's a lot of darkness, there's a lot of emptiness, there's a lot of helplessness, there's estrangement between you and God, and that's the whole story. And so uh, covenants, now there are two. God was going to save the world from the foundation of the world, but he was going to do it in two phases called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the Old Testament was going always going to become the New Testament by virtue of the Hebrew scriptures themselves. The Hebrew scriptures said the Old Testament is temporary. There's a New Testament coming. That's the fulfillment. So if you want to look at it this way, the first testament or the old covenant says do this or die. The purpose of that law or covenant was to show us our sins, to keep us in check, and to lead us to Christ. Now, the new arrangement, the new covenant, the New Testament, which Jeremiah and Ezekiel said were coming. This wasn't some new Gentile idea to displace the Old Testament. It's the Jewish idea that the Old Testament was the teaching, prepping time. The New Testament was the accomplishing time. Nothing was accomplished under the Old Testament just to teach you what needs to be done, your condition, how God's going to fix it. It's teaching and preparing. That's what it's doing, the first covenant. And they want to go from accomplished to go back to the teaching days. And he's going to show them why they, they shouldn't do that. And you know what? If the first covenant says, do this or die. Thou shalt, 
or thou shalt die, or thou shalt not, and if thou shalt, then thou shalt die, right? It, <laughs> did you follow that? I did, and that's what's scaring me. Then, of course, the heartbeat of Old Testament worship has to involve animal sacrifice or blood because we've, they and we and all of us have broken the covenant. So how can you have an arrangement that says do this or die or don't do that and die or die and not have a way to, okay, so we did that. We broke the covenant. So how do we worship God? Well, you'll worship in a way that shows you somebody has to pay for that crime. Someone has to pay for that. And that makes perfect sense. So that's what it's doing. It's covering temporarily the sin the wages that lead to death, until the real deal can come. Not the Gentile ideal, idea of the real deal. The Jewish idea of the promised uh, suffering servant who would come and die for the sins of the world. <laughs> Isaiah 50, 52, and 53 are called the song of the servant, where the Messiah suffers and dies for the sins of the people. Uh, by his wounds, we are healed. By his stripes, the Lord has laid the, the, the sins of us all upon him. And by that transaction, we are forgiven. That's a Jewish idea right there. So it's telling the story. Uh, basically saying, uh, we, are, we are lost, but he will save us. Let's go through those pieces really quick, I promise, all right? Number, n- number one, he says, there's an earthly tabernacle, God's teaching lab. He's got a lab, okay? And he's gonna teach us about the gospel, phase one. And phase one, a picture of the tabernacle. Um, Moses was, was shown this, and you know, there's only one entrance. It's everything screaming Jesus, his life and work, the glorious gospel coming to the world. And so uh, I have a better picture of this. This is called the holy place, the first room. And the second room behind the big veil or curtain is the holy of holy place where the Ark of the Covenant. And everything is, is just a picture of Christ, his life and work on the cross, his death and resurrection on our behalf. So we're gonna go inside the holy place. He just names two things there. He says, and, and let me remind you of the significance in the next slide, please. So he says, I, where the lampstand is. Oh, come on. There's darkness. All humans have is ignorance and darkness and hopelessness. But with God, he brings the light. And and Jesus will, will say, he says, this is the verdict. He says, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And this world is always called dark, right? And so here's the problem. Here's the lesson of Judaism right here. It's not just the candelabra. It's, it's saying this world is a dark place and you are in that darkness. You live in spiritual dark ignorance without the light of God. Then Christ comes and says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And so you've got the story of the gospel right there by the furnishings. And so he's hoping they're going to get it. Like, you've got the, you can't look at this anymore. You've got to look at Jesus. Next slide. He goes on to mention the 
It's called a showbread in King James. It just means the bread of presence. And so there's six for the, on this side, six on this side for the tribes, for God's people, God's heart. Let's break bread. Let's have fellowship. I want to, to be at peace with you. This is God's heart that he provides for us. But Jesus will say, here's what he's saying. You guys are starving to death without me. You are empty. You have no satisfaction. You don't know why you're here. You can't possibly be content. Man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of God's mouth, right? And so he says, Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. Whoever eats of this bread shall never hunger and shall never die. So he's saying, listen, I got something for you. It's going to make you feel really good inside. It's going to fill you up and make you alive. Next slide. The high priest lights this altar of incense that represents a prayer of intercession on the sinner's behalf. But here's the kicker. It can only be lit by a coal from the altar. In the front, there was an altar, a bronze altar of sacrifice. The blood dripped down on the coals, and they were commanded to take a coal from the blood drippings and light that fire, and it will, here's what it said, a sacrifice on your behalf will rise up before you and the judgment of God and be a sweet intervention. But don't you dare try to light that fire without a coal from the altar. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's firstborn and secondborn, Got a little lazy, didn't want to go back to the altar to get the blood-soaked coal, and so they just pulled out a Bic lighter or whatever. <laughs> you got a match? I don't know. You got a match, you know? Well, they're not going to have any breath left in their body to ask the next question because they light it with no blood. Bam, both struck dead. God's just saying, hey, I got a little <laughs> a life application lesson here or there is no intercession without a blood sacrifice that was the lesson there he goes on the ark of the covenant is behind the curtain it represented the throne but there's a curtain there you're busted out you cannot come in there because of obvious problems with sin so four by two by two acacia wood laid uh, overlaid with gold pure gold, there's the cherubim looking down on what is called the atonement cover or is called the mercy seat. Now, he's going to say that uh, only one man, one time a year, gets to go into the presence of God. And that entry is safeguarded by blood. And that blood goes on the top of the mercy seat. And the Lord says, then I will meet with you. When there's blood there. Well, why? Well, what's inside the ark? That's important. Number one was the, the Ten Commandments. The stone that condemned us. Paul calls the, the first covenant a ministry of death. It just points out the problem. You have sin and the wages of sin is death. So of course the blood sacrifice has to go here because the foundation of God's throne is righteousness. 
It's the Ten Commandments represent the perfect moral code of God, which everybody has broken. Well, the only reason you can come in here is if somebody pays, that there's justice. And so take that person who dies, blood, proof that your sins have been paid for and put it right there on the seat. And we'll call it the mercy seat. That's how I can meet with you. The second uh, thing that was in there, love it, is the golden jar that had some manna in it saved. Manna is the bread that God put, came, brought down for the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. They picked it up every morning, bread from heaven. And in John chapter 6, after, check this out, after multiplying the fish and the loaves of bread, he says, By, speaking of bread, 10,000 people are chomping down on bread. Speaking of bread, I am the bread of life. I am the bread, I'm the manna that came down from heaven to give my life for the life of the world. It's all right there. And look at this. He says that. He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. He says, I'm the bread of life. If any man eat of this bread, he'll never die. Born in the house of bread, comes down from heaven. He says, I'm the manna. And then he says, on the night he's betrayed, before he does the cross, hours before he offers his body, he says, take it, eat it, you'll live. He's talking about the cross and what he's done on the cross. How did we get into the sentence of death? She took it and ate. She gave it to her husband. He took it and ate and they died. Jesus says, I've got the remedy. It'll be me. I will come down. I am like the bread of life. I'll counteract the poison that you ate through the disobedience of sin that brought not only death and judgment to them, but to the whole human race. Now he says, whosoever will want to come to the second Adam and take and eat what I tell you to. Now we eat in obedience and live instead of eating in disobedience and dying. It's all right there. It's all right there. Is there one more thing left in there? Oh, the rod that budded. In Numbers chapter 17, you got to know the story. And the rest of it moves a lot faster, so don't worry. I mean, not in a couple hours, really. It's done. <laughs> Aaron's, you just got, you can't miss that. How could you miss that? That's too wonderful to not talk about. So what else is in there? A piece of the walking stick of Aaron. His walking staff budded, leaves, flowers, and full-grown, ripe, ready-to-eat almonds overnight. But here's the point. And a lot of commentators say, oh, it's the death from uh, life from the dead, if you come to Christ through the blood, if you come to God through the blood of Christ, you'll live forever and God will bring life out of a dead thing. That's half of it. But what's the context of the story? Why is that in there? Why is it important? Because Korah, a rebellious bad guy, came and said to Aaron's descendants, anybody, anybody can offer, anybody can be high priest. Who do you guys think you are? Oh, Mr. 
holier than thou. There's lots of roads that lead to God. And the point is that God is going to say there is one mediator appointed. Christ means appointed, chosen. The Greek word of Messiah, Messiah is Hebrew. Christ is Greek, same word. And it means the chosen way. So Korah was saying, hey, any, any of us could be high priest. And so the Lord said, tell them, line up all the staffs. So they took all their, their walking sticks and lined them up. And they came back in the morning. <laughs> and Aaron's was budded with almonds. So they're, you know, and that's why we have all men joy. <laughs> you didn't know that. Listen, I have to throw in a few jokes. It's a long one. All roads lead to God, but on the other end is either a father or a judge. And he said, there, this is long before Acts 4.12 that says there is one name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. Uh, go back to the, the first slide. No, the first picture of the tabernacle. Thank you. How many doors in? What is that teaching you? There is one door. There's one way in. You can't get in any other way. Jesus said, if you try to get in any other way, you're a thief and a robber, right? And what did he say? He said, I am the door. Anyone who enters through me will find life. It's everywhere. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh, we need to move on. Six through 10. Okay, when everything had been arranged, all the furnishings like this, the priests entered regularly to the outer room, the holy places. That's cool. They could go in there. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom, Hebrew, the day. Kippur, the verb, to cover. Once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself because he's a sinner, and for the sins the people had committed in ignorance. <laughs> Do you know that the Old Testament sacrifice is such a lesser sacrifice than Jesus? In this, it was never designed for intentional sinning. When you just get in your little mood and you do whatever you want, and you just think, well, I'm covered. Whoa. Originally, the first covenant was only for unintentional sins. How much greater sacrifice Christ Jesus our Lord, who says, confess your sins, he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We got a better deal. That's what he's trying to tell them. You got a better deal. Please do not go back to the synagogue. You're going to be highly disappointed. All right, moving on. The Holy Spirit was... Showing by this that the way to the most holy place, and now he's not talking about the temple. He's talking about heaven. God's throne room had not been disclosed for as long as the first tabernacle, the tent, was standing. Then it's showing you something. You can't get to heaven because this one's telling you have a problem. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. 
They're only a matter of food and drink, various ceremonial washings, external regulations, applying until the time of the new order. So let's pause there for number two. So number two is uh, we have a big problem, and we have, and that problem is we have restricted access to God. That's what he's saying. Verses six through ten, he's saying. Before you sign up with your favorite rabbi and go back, he says, I've got three sad realities of the old covenant that I need to bring to your mind again. And he says, uh, number one, no Israelite went into the presence of God, not even the high priest. For 364 days, he's out. What kind of fun is this? Nobody gets to have just free interchange with the living God because of the curtain. There's sin. There's a problem. And the blood of bulls and goats isn't going to cut it. So, so while that's going on, it's saying in itself, you can't get to heaven. There's a problem. We keep offering. We keep covering. We keep offering. We keep covering 1,400 years. So he's saying while that's going on, it's testifying of itself, you can't go into heaven. That's pretty an amazing thing. And then he says the blood of bulls and goats just can't touch your, your conscience. And he says, you know, you can do ceremonial things, but they're a matter of food and drink and a various ceremonial washings, uh, you know, you do your holy religious thing. He says they're external regulations, which Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, says they're just shadows of good, the good things to come. He said, <laughs> they only apply until the new order. So you know what? You can do all your good works. You can light a thousand candles a day. You can deliver a hundred meals to a hundred people in need. You can give all your wealth to the poor. One drop of the Savior's blood is worth all of that and a whole lot more. You can never steal your conscience by doing good things, ever. And Christians, even though they know that in their head, they keep trying. All that we do good deeds for is a response to God's love, not to earn it. We just are responding. But he doesn't love you anymore because you do stuff, and your conscience will never be stilled by doing, doing, doing. It's only in knowing, knowing, knowing. What has been applied to your account and that? So he says it's an endless temporary thing that's going on and on. Burn offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, daily, weekly, monthly, annually. And he says, verse eight's the most important part. He says, the way to God's presence could not be accessed while that covenant was in place. You know what he's saying? He's saying until Christ came, they could not go to heaven, and they did not. Not one of those Old Testament believers died and went to heaven in the sense that we call heaven. They did not. How, how could they? Have, uh, they were not paid for. The blood of bulls and goats was being offered while they were dying. Uh, the, the, the temple curtain was still in force. They didn't go up into heaven. They went to a place, and you will never find in the Old Testament talk of going to heaven. Never. It's not there. 
Why? Because they didn't go. They were saved in faith that one day their sins would be paid for. But until their sins were paid for, not by a chicken or a goose or a goat. But they didn't do chickens and gooses. I was on barnyard and I just... They did pigeons and doves. It wasn't going to work. So where did they go? They went to Sheol. Sheol, Hades. In the Greek, Hades. Sheol in the Hebrew. They descended to a place Jesus called paradise. It was a nice place. It's really pre-heaven. They're waiting for Messiah to come, take care of business, pay for their sins, cleanse their consciences, take their sins away so that when Christ comes, he dies, and he says, it's finished. And next breath, Jesus gave up his spirit and died. Next verse, and the curtain in the temple was torn, top to bottom, signifying who did the tearing. Now we can enter. Now they can enter. And what does he do? He deals a thief on the cross. Good move, repenting right then. Phew, close call. <laughs> but today, this day, you and me in paradise, they descend. He's got three days. He's got three days to have a little celebration, do a little victory preaching. All right, how do we know all of this? Luke chapter 16 tells the story of two people dying, a believer and an unbeliever. And they both descend, and they go to Hades. There's the righteous side that's called Abraham's in the King James bosom, but it's Abraham's heart, Abraham's side. It's the waiting place until Messiah will pay for us. It's paradise. They're out of harm's way. They're not getting off the hook yet because their sins are still on them, in a sense. They're not paid for. They're covered. The bad guy, where does he end up? In talking distance past a gulf, an uncrossable gulf, he's in the agony, fire-hot side, and he's asking for a cup of water, not even to drink. He wants Lazarus, and he's giving orders because he's used to giving orders. (laughs) He says, hey, Abraham, give uh, Lazarus a cup of water. Let him dip his finger in a cup of water and put a drop on my tongue because I'm in agony in this place. And then he's trying to say, he has a little compassion and he's perished and he's got compassion. He says, then have Lazarus rise from the dead and go and tell my five brothers that there's this place here. And Abraham says, oh, they've got the Bible, bro. They got the Bible. If you don't hear God's word, oh, they won't care that Lazarus, they'll just say Lazarus saw, we thought he died, but he didn't really die. No, that's not even part of the story of why we're telling it. I'm telling you the story because there's that place when Jesus descends with the thief, when he ascends, he leads captivity captive and he takes the whole righteous side of Sheol up with him. 40 days later, when he ascends, Ephesians chapter 4 says that he takes captivity captive. And in his wake, in his wake of ascension, he's carrying them all up there. Haven't you even been puzzled at Matthew chapter 27, where it shows after Jesus dies, that the temple is, the curtain is torn. 
and the tombs are opened and Old Testament believers are raised from the dead and they go into town. Why? Because they're moving on up. <laughs> they're moving on up. They're no longer uh, consigned to paradise. I said in the first service, trapped in paradise. Well, they were. I mean, if you're going to be trapped, paradise is a nice place to be trapped. But now... He takes them into the presence because why their sins are gone. They're removed. They're free. They're free intercourse with God. There's no problem in heaven. Now, when a believer dies, looking back at what they were looking forward to, we look back to that cross. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We don't go to pre-heaven. We go into the heavenly throne room. Why? Because we've been taken care of by the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. And by the way, he left the agony side of Hades there. When an unbeliever perishes, he descends. And he's waiting for the end of the age when all of Hades is resurrected up before what is called a great white throne of judgment and the books are open and they are all judged according to their deeds. And then he says, depart from me. And hell does not begin until that day. I mean, I, you can sort of use Hades and hell in that sense. There, there are some similar characteristics. But if you want to be theologically correct and accurate... You know, the whole point really is Ezekiel 33, 11. Why will you die, O Israel, when you don't have to? I take no delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn and live. That's the point of God. But yet people will, will still go on. Let's continue 11 through 15. When Christ came, who's ready for some good news? <laughs> we got it right there. Good things when Christ came as the high priest, mediator, defense attorney of the good things that are already here, Hebrews. He went through the greater and more perfect worship center, not made by human hands. That is to say, not part of this world. He did not enter by means of the blood of bulls and goats, he entered the most holy place. He's talking about heaven. Once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer that was one prescribed offering, sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, so socially, it would sanctify them or set them apart socially so that they were outwardly clean, how much more than with the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God. By the way, all offerings had to be unblemished because Christ was sinless. Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that, oh, this is important, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is a mediator, the in-between guy, the advocate, your representative, your ambassador. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, a new arrangement, a new deal, grace. 
that those who are called may receive the promised eternal, inter, eternal inheritance. Eternal, you can't lose something that's eternal. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under this first covenant. And so we have a big problem. We need light in life. We have been restricted from God's presence, but now we have a clean conscience because we have a savior. Let's just look at this really uh, quickly. Now it's time to talk about some good things. Uh, you know, it's pretty interesting um, David, the, the model of the temple and the complex. Jesus, he said, never stepped foot into the temple. He never went in there. He went in here. He never went in there, right? The outer court uh, of the inner court and the holy place and the holy of holy. Why? Oh, come on. Jesus is going to go in there and schlep around some goat blood, you know, here, oh, I did the best I could with this goat, you know, and oh, come on, you know, it's not about a building that, that Herod helped build, he's saying. He's saying it's about the heavens. He transacted eternal redemption in heaven through his own sacrifice. Of course, he didn't have to go into the temple to to play the dress rehearsal. He's not a part of the dress rehearsal. He's a part of the answer. He's the reality of all their play acting. So he comes onto the scene. He doesn't need to go in there. He didn't come to be a part of that. He came to end it. He came to end it. And then he talks about the efficacy, the effectiveness of God's blood to quiet that nagging conscience of yours. A Sunday school boy was interviewed and said, uh, how do you define a conscience? And he said, the conscience is one part of you that is unhappy, even though all the other parts seem happy. <laughs> well, nothing can convince that conscience to stop but a spirit revelation of the value of who sacrifice that would be God, God, the eternal God, the eternal God is on a piece of wood that he created and he's agonizing. He's crying out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? And he's being judged there. When your soul gets that, it's relieved. It understands, you know, maybe my little good deeds don't amount to much. And let me tell you, they don't. Never try to quiet your conscience by turning over a new leaf or whatever. Get on your knees and thank God for his blood that sanctified you. His blood that cleanses you. That is what will stop that thing once and for all. This conscience, you tell that conscience of yours, has been paid for by the blood and the sweat drops and the cries and the screams and the groans of God himself paid in full and he said it is finished when that truth gets to that little squeaker you know you say shut up in the name of Jesus right or you can just let it go on forever <laughs> that's what his point is there um Moving on, 16, we got a lot. We're almost there, we're almost there. 
Now, in the, this is an easy one. <laughs> in the case of a will, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it because a will's in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. Uh, when Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. Very interesting here, by the way. You have a picture of Jesus again, the water that flows from his side when it's pierced, the scarlet wool. Come on, he put a, a scarlet. He's wearing the scarlet robe there in front of Herod. The branches of hyssop. Come on, you could have picked any branch. or You could have put that sponge of vinegar on, on a pole. You didn't have to put it on a hyssop branch. But in order that every last thing in the Old Testament when it comes to cleansing is seen in Christ and the cross, it's just amazing. There it is again. He says, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep in the same way he sprinkled blood both on the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, and this is the reason, there's no forgiveness of sins. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, the things there, the furnishings, to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And that would be the blood of Christ. And so really the necessity of Jesus' death. So... Here's the point. We are heirs. We are heirs. Now he's saying, listen, suppose you had a grandpa who had 25 million bucks. And he says, you, my grandchild, are going to inherit it all. Well, you start thinking, well, how long could grandpa possibly live? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But... <laughs> so, so you get... He's making a point here. He's saying there's a lot of blood here because God's making a point. Somebody had to die for you in order to get your in eternal inheritance of eternal life and all the glory that goes with it. He had to die. He had to die. The, the will was, the, the Old Testament's waiting, waiting. There's all this promise of glory and eternal life and thrones in heaven and mansions and glory and all of that. We're waiting to inherit it, but he had to die. There had to be his death so that the funds could be dispersed. And they are dispersed when the God-man comes, the sinless one. And of course, you know, the high priest couldn't pay because he was a sinner himself. Whoever paid for us had to have wealth morally. They had to be rich in perfection and holiness and righteousness and purity to be able to share it with you. So one sinner isn't going to say, hey, I'm going to bail you out. And he's morally bankrupt as well. So you have a savior who's rich and, and willing to share and he did. I love the scripture that says, for you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
2 Corinthians 8 9. Do you think that scripture means that because Jesus took a pay cut that we became rich? That scripture means not only did he forego the treasures of heaven, but he became poor unto death. He emptied more than his pockets to make you rich. He emptied himself of his life. And by that, he says he had to die. The other thing about why everybody, the people had to be splattered with blood, why? Because unless you die too, those funds are not dispersed. Oh, yeah. I'm not talking about your physical death. I'm talking to you about if anyone wants to follow me, he needs to deny self, pick up their cross, right? So you, when you're baptized, you have said, I have died to my old life and I have been raised to a new life. The funds are not dispersed to any person who hasn't experienced a born again transition where the old self has died. So the reason everything's splattered with blood is that Jesus is not the only one who has to die. You don't get any benefits if you're walking around the same person, the same person doing your same old thing, saying, oh, the blood of Jesus will save me, but you have not figuratively, in a sense, died to your old life and been raised to a new life. You don't get the funds either. That's the point. Why everybody had to be in the crowd they take a little branch and, and blood. Meaning, this isn't just Jesus' death. You're signing up to die with him on that cross, be buried with him in that grave, and yes, then be raised with him to glory. But you don't get the three without the one and the two. Amen? Amen. All right, let's move on. Last part, I believe. We did it. We did it. Now, for Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary. He never went in there. That was only a copy of the true one in heaven. Now to appear for us in God's presence, the Father's presence, God the Son. Wow. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself once and for all, right? Just as man is destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, been there, done that, but to bring salvation this is rescue, not, not our eternal salvation. This word means to rescue us from the wrath of God that will come upon a Christ-rejecting world for those who are waiting for him. He rescues us off the scene. That is the purpose of the second coming. So what is he saying here? Number one is a direct um, defense of the Protestant theology that says Christ died once, our Catholic friends say that every time that there is a mass, that Jesus is experiencing death. 
and that the cup and the bread become literally his blood and his flesh so that he is being crucified in Catholic theology over and over and over again. You cannot read this and square that practice with these scriptures. That's why we are called Protestants. Protestants protested and said, hey, wait a second, we've got 95 reasons, we've got problems, we're protesting some of this theology, and so that's why we're not Catholics. We're called, we're protesters. I mean, unless you want to be a Catholic, and you're free to do that, but I'm just telling you what we are here. (laughs) The second thing is, and it's not the point of the passage, it's appointed unto men once to die. How many times do we have to hear in this area that, you know, maybe I'll get it right the next time? You don't get a next time. This whole thing with reincarnation, this is what the Bible says. Here's your verse. You don't get a second time. You are accountable for the life that you are living. God gave you one life, and you will die on your appointed day, and you have an appointment to stand before God. And when you die, you face judgment. And that's the point of the book of Hebrews, so that you will not be condemned and follow the devil and his angels into the flame that was prepared for them alone, not you. The devil's fire was for him. And anybody proud enough to follow him. And the last thing he says is is that the two covenants, once was to bear sin, he's done that, but the second Uh, covenant is to rescue us from the wrath to come. Listen, God is coming through Christ. He's going to appear, and there are going to be seven years that we call Armageddon or the Great Tribulation. Listen, Matthew 24 and verse 21 says the second coming, right? That's where we get the, the word, the phrase second coming from this verse. Matthew 24 and verse 21, Jesus says there's a great tribulation coming. There's been nothing like it before. There's nothing like it after. He said, if the days weren't cut short, there'd be not one living person. It goes on, Revelation chapter 6 verse 18 shows how that happens. That in Revelation chapter 4, John and the church is called out of the way. And then there are seven years of terrible judgments, seven years of of seals that are opened up and judgment comes. Seven, seven, another seven um, trumpets go off and seven more terrible uh, trumpets. A fourth of the world dies. A third of the world dies. Uh, A third of the trees, a third of this. And then before you know it, the last seven bulls are dropped. 21 judgments from chapter 6 to 18 of Revelation to save those who are waiting for him. He's coming to save us. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 to the church, I will save you from the hour of great tribulation that is coming on the whole earth. He promises to do that. And how does he do it? He says, Matthew 24, it's going to be like the days of Noah. It's going to be business as usual. 
It's going to be people going to, to engagement parties, weddings. They're going to go to work. They're going to stop at Starbucks and get a latte. It's just going to be regular. And then he said, listen, just like Noah's day, nobody had a clue. And then the, they went in the ark, the door shut, bam, it started. But nobody had a clue. Now, he can't possibly come to rescue us at the end of that because, trust me, at the end of 21 of those judgments, the earth is charred. It's, a, it's got a nuclear glow to it. There's hardly anybody left. Nobody's saying, hey, you going to Mary's wedding? You know, no, 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 no. It's not going to be that way. He says, I'm going to come as a thief in the night. And what does a thief do? He sneaks in. He takes his valuables and he gets out of there. That's what that means. And so he says, I will spare you from that. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We are waiting for God's son who rescues us from the coming wrath. That word does not mean hell. It means God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. Yeah, so there it is. That's the whole point. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away their sins, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to, to rescue us. That's pretty cool. So really, it can't get too bad. Or Matthew 24 doesn't work. Matthew 24's whole point is that when he appears for the church, nobody's got a clue. And people are going to parties and working. And, and what does he say? Two will be in a field. One goes, one stays. Two in a bed. A husband and a wife. One saved, one isn't. She rolls over, bam. Or the other way around. <laughs> However you want to make it. That's what he said gone. One more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. We who are alive at the coming of the Lord by the Lord's own words shall be caught up and taken to be with the Lord, to meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. There it is. Caught up. He is appearing. Rescue us from the wrath that's coming. Saves us from the wrath that's coming here. You see? That is God's plan. And how is it all made possible? It's because God became a man out of love, died on the cross, poured out his blood, was buried, rose again, ascended, sent the Holy Spirit to change us, to give us clean consciences. Let me end with just a note of our response to all of this. Here's a, show, show me the picture of the guys with the guns. Now all the guys are checked in again. <laughs> this dude, this dude's a hero. He's the youngest man to ever get the gold medal of honor. They were on a rooftop in Afghanistan, and, uh, and uh, somebody threw a grenade, and there were some men there, and this hero jumped on top of it. And I, I had a hospital picture. It was pretty involved, but I don't have the hospital picture. Uh, he has had 40 operations. Um, his right arm mangled, not very usable. Uh, he broke, uh, he had 25 breaks, you know. 
and 40 surgeries in his face and he lost his eye. There's a picture of him. Yeah. And then he was rewarded. The response in the text and the, the verse that stood out to me is this, that he cleanses our consciences so that we can be free to serve the living God. Now, for me, I just started thinking, his point is, look what Christ has done for you. Not only do you have a clean conscience, but you have this eternal inheritance, right? Jesus said, you're going to sit with me on thrones. I'm going to give you guys crowns. You're going to be my rulers. We're going to have a world, and you guys are going to be my administrators. I mean, I'd be just happy to get there and escape the flames that I deserve, you know? But to, to tell me I'm going to sit at the king's table, honor, and I'm going to have a crown and authority and all of this? Wow. Well, what does this, this guy says to his friends who he saved? Hey, I got a, I got a favor. I need, I need something. It's done before it gets out of, finishes coming out of his mouth because they, don't, they wouldn't exist if it weren't for him, right? Jesus did more than throw himself on a grenade. He really did, and he did that for you. And then he says, hey, I've got, I've got, I've got, the, I've got a church I really love. I die for them. I really care for them. I've got a world that my heart aches for. I want them to know. I want your friends to know. I want your acquaintance. I put you in those places so that you could reach them. So that you, at least you could pray for them and care and do my work. Come on. He sits enthroned now by the hands of the Father. He sits at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high. And he says, could you help me out? Could you not just make a checklist of all the things you want to do in life and all the problems and all the ways that your needs aren't met and well, all about you, but look what I did for you. Make your life about serving in response to a love that Jesus said, no man has greater love than he throw himself down and die for his friends. And he says, you are my friends. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. There's just so much to think about. We know, we hear all of that sacrifice and suffering that you have done on our behalf. And then we want to freely respond by serving you. So help us reflect, led by the Holy Spirit, ways we might better honor what you have done, the sacrifice on our behalf by living in obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen, amen. Let's stand, closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org or find us on Facebook. These podcasts are also available in video format on our Calvary Chapel The Rock YouTube page.